0: Welcome to the New Books Network.
1: Hello and welcome to the New Books Network. I'm Alejandra Bronfman. My guest today is Carolyn Birdsell. Her book, Radiophilia, has just been published with Bloomsbury Press as part of a series called The Study of Sound. This book is an effort to understand, historicize, and theorize radiophilia, or love of radio. Its broad, temporal, and geographic scope makes it useful for so many of us who write and think about radio. It's also very readable and accessible, so great for students. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Hi, Carolyn, thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks for having me, Alejandra. Let's just jump right into the beginning. Actually, even before the beginning, let's talk about the title. Um, sure. What is the concept of radiophilia and why do we need it? Sure thing, so
0: I had the feeling already for some time that other fields around radio studies had done a better job at thinking, for instance, about audiophilia, or musicophilia and I, I started reading quite a bit of fan studies literature and noticed that no almost no radio uh was covered um in that discipline or sub subfield and so bit by bit i started to think about what radiophilia might mean that we might think about the love for radio and because it was around the time of 100 years of radio in a number of countries i started to think about it as an expansive concept that might cover early wireless and early radio practices, amateur radio practices as well, through to the present day situation of internet radio and digital audio-based formats like podcasting. So it it is quite a flexible concept in the sense that I'm thinking about radiophilia as a love for or a strong attachment to radio but I'm trying to think about how the different conditions, forms, and media assemblages of radio may actually differ across time and space and give us different uh instantiations or or context for these diverse possibilities of what radiophilia might be. So I in that sense, I'm I'm thinking about. This love of radio and a t- or a strong attachment to radio, it doesn't have to always be love. Um, it could be more intermittent or fleeting. But I, I I do think about it as something that we can examine across a roughly hundred year period.
1: Yeah, and actually that's one of the things that I wanted to ask you about because this is not a long book. Um, it's a it's a it's a kind of a perfect length as far as I'm concerned. But you do pull together. You know, a hundred years of time and a lot of space. You make a point to sort of decenter the North American slash European uh emphasis of radio studies and you do kind of roam across the globe. And so I just wanted to ask you, how did you manage that? How did you make the decisions about what to put in, what to leave out? Sure. I mean
0: at some level, I, I had to tell myself that it wasn't possible to do everything, and rather to be illustrative in some of the things I was doing. So, making certain moves that 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 show us certain things about different contexts, uh, global contexts of radio, or s- situations of how radio has been adopted and used, uh, you know, uh, globally. Um, and so, I hope that that my reader also understands that as I kind of move between different places, whether that's Asia Pacific or Central and South America, um, uh, Asia and Russia, as, as well as thinking about different contexts in Europe and North America, I'm I'm trying to work in a more illustrative way to say, yes, while the dominant research has told us that radio was domesticated in a certain way uh, and brought into predominantly um, uh, nuclear family home settings uh, from the 1920s onwards uh, and that there's a particular pathway for how we've been uh, taught to think about that in the context of North America and Western Europe there may be other ways in which radio has been defined and used that may be public settings um, other forms of uh, of of uh, family, friend, workplace uh, scenarios uh, that are not just limited to this early narrative about the domestic hearth. So I hope that my reader understands I'm not trying to do everything, but through moving through different contexts, I'm reflecting back on some of the norms that have become too easily accepted. And at the same time, I'm not dismissing those norms because I try to understand, like I do use examples from North America and Western Europe uh, to help us understand how how certain uh notions of say the the male invented genius or um like a certain type of history of radio's introduction and, and adoption have become so entrenched so how certain uh, institutions such as museums um timelines um exhibitions or encyclopedias work to uh, create the knowledge of what happened from radio's earliest beginnings until the present.
1: Yeah, and actually that's one of the things uh, another one of the things that I wanted to ask you about because you, you know, I've I've been reading your work for a long time. And one of the things that's so interesting is the way you do um, lay out a narrative and make a compelling case for it, but then also poke at it uh, <laughs> in different kinds of ways. <laughs> it's one of my- one of my favorite things about your work. And so I wonder if you can talk about what other narratives you might be poking at in this book.
0: Sure. I mean, that's a very nice compliment. And <laughs> I've never heard that before, but now that you say it, I think you're right. Maybe it's, uh, um, it's somehow I think we're taught, especially in the discipline of history. And I I, I trained as a historian as well as a media scholar um, to craft a narrative. And I think, storytelling is something that I've really had to learn to do it didn't come naturally in in the kind of let's say history discipline to me I had to really think about what does it mean to have an opening vignette and go somewhere with it and then wrap it up and I think I think I realized that I I struggle a bit with neat storylines I'm happy to do a bit of beginning middle and end but sometimes by the time I'm getting to the conclusion I'm already starting to think yes but <laughs> and I think that's maybe a, it probably happens to many people is like just when it seems too easy to wrap it up you kind of want to think about counter arguments and counter examples to the thing you've just uh, <laughs> the thing you've just done so I'm just thinking um what are the, the narratives um I, mean, I think I just mentioned the male inventor genius yes. um so I think that's something that I until doing the research for this book obviously you know was aware of its existence and its influence on early radio history or wireless radio history um with figures such as Marconi or Edison for a recorded sound and so on um I think I hadn't quite realized how different types of uh, yeah genres or formats in in the early decades of radio were so insistent on reproducing those narratives whether it's in amateur radio magazines or in uh, national yearbooks of radio or like I said in museums early museums and exhibitions Um, it was really only when I started to look at photos and and catalogues and different publications that I saw that almost every issue and every event had bus of Marconi and uh, probably sometimes Tesla as well, and Edison, and um, had a lot of timelines, and you know, really kind of reproducing and re- reinforcing this emphasis on, on the you know, yeah, let's say North American and Western European invented geniuses in the history of radio. So I think it's something that that the the research really presented to me in a way I, I perhaps had underestimated in the past.
1: Yeah. And that just opens up space for thinking about things in a different way, even while, as you say, kind of maintaining that, that that was an important part of, of radio. Uh, So I really like that. Um, I want to end, I want to end with a discussion of affect and emotion, because I think that's something that uh, it's another kind of um, framing that is really important to the book. But before we do that, I want to sort of talk about the categories uh, around which you organized the book and the way that you um, decided to create these really kind of provocative themes of loving, knowing, saving, and sharing. So, how how did you come up with that? I mean, I would imagine that it would, would was a, a long and difficult process of figuring out how to how to organize all of the material that you had.
0: Um. To, to some degree yes and it was partially that um as I gathered the material for this research that it there was a sense of sort of yes yeah, self-elective organization that certain that, that I noticed certain patterns and so even though to some degree I, I had an inkling that it might go in this direction prior to the research I I did notice like you know already in the theories of um of love I was reading they were talking of and as well as fan studies were talking about the relationship between um love and affect with knowing and processes of uh of, of let's say playful knowledge uh, and hands-on knowledge so you know, some of it was coming from material some of it was coming from the reading I was doing in 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 uh, uh, feminist love studies and fan studies um but in terms of uh this particular organization so uh as you mentioned uh the focus of the four chapters is on uh loving knowing saving and uh sharing or we could say putting your love of radio on display um and I think what I did do is try to understand uh these sort of acts of doing um these kind of practice words um really as as different aspects to this larger process so i guess in the beginning it's more of a theoretical chapter the first chapter on uh loving and that's that i'm really asking like what is the love of radio and how does one express this loving so what are the different possible forms it takes on the side of um the listener or the audience but also what kinds of uh aspects are there to radio that serve as a kind of invitation to that love so in a way that first chapter is trying to think about the qualities of radio over time but also what listeners or fans and audiences bring with their loving of radio so it's not just uh, something inherent to the medium or its functions or qualities at any one time but something that comes from them and their their kind of uh self self-directed acts of uh of of attachment and then the second one I guess um there was some really interesting work coming out of film studies that helped me think about um this relationship between learning to love uh cinema in the 1910s and 20s in uh in early cinephilic and and film fan culture so I I really profited from reading that material that helped me think about how learning to love radio is hand in hand with processes of um, knowledge production pedagogy uh, and so forth Um, and then I guess because of this emphasis on audiences and listeners and thinking about what they kind of what practices they develop or what what kinds of actions that might happen or forms of material culture around radio that's where the the second two chapters about saving and sharing come in, that I guess um, there's a little bit of a risk when you focus on loving and knowledge that you might stay a little bit on the institutional side. And I guess by thinking about saving and saving the thing you love or sharing your love of radio or putting on display, I was really trying to think about, um, you know, what types of ways do people take the so-called ephemeral medium of radio and actually hold on to its bits and pieces, whether that's sound traces or non-sound traces like uh, postcards or souvenirs or T-shirts or something else. And in a way, the the sharing is thinking about both these uh, individual um, dimensions to to putting your love of radio on display or sharing it with others, as well as these more collective dimensions of practices like um, collective listening or uh, group listening.
1: Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals.
0: That's why they're introducing an all new Bumble with exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better and dating safer. They've changed. So you don't have to download the new Bumble now.
1: Yeah, I want to um, I want to dig in a little bit more into each of these categories because I find it exciting. Sure. And I also I also think as you were talking, I I think that there's there's room there to think about this kind of framing as Um, being able to like applicable to other forms of media as well. And I was actually thinking about, for example, in terms of loving, you really talk about the relationship to material culture. So um, it's less about, you know, your sources aren't people talking about how much they love radio, although there's a little bit of that, but it's really sort of what are the, what are the material cultures? What are the objects that sort of promoted this idea of the love for radio? And if you think about it, today, for example, you know, marketing of, let's just say the iPhone, right? It's all about love, like, do you love your phone, right? And sure. how is that even a question? <laughs> so, um, so yeah, I, I would love to hear you talk more about this uh, relationship to material culture.
0: Sure, I think, you know, you're pointing to something that that I perhaps had a sense of, but I only really started to realize, uh, when conducting the research, which was that, too often the ways in which uh media history but also media studies have been separated along lines of certain um, media and a kind of obsession with medium specificity means that we often talk about the film fan or the film audience and we might talk about um you know magazine readers and and the, the magazine reading audience and in, to to the same degree uh, we we talk about you know the radio listener and the radio audience. and still even though there have been colleagues in radio studies that have very helpfully pointed pointed to uh, both overlaps in the industry between recorded music, cinema uh, and radio as well as later television and so forth, I think um, as well as then you know t- trying to think about the the audiences as being audiences that read, and consume visual imagery and also listen to the radio potentially at the same time I I had the feeling that we still yeah we still have had done too little to think about that in terms of crossover fandoms um you know I think there still is a tendency to kind of parcel off our group of people for our own purposes for the you know at the moment that they appear as a amateur radio Uh, fan or at the moment that they appear as someone who writes a letter to a magazine um, or they ring up a radio station we we want them to be a a radio listener and we kind of hog them for ourselves and so I think part of what I was trying to make sense of is that especially in this early period of the 1920s to 1940s where we have quite a strong kind of intermedial culture around uh, around these different new media like uh, sound film radio um and uh, modern Illustrated magazine culture that we might want to think about crossover fandoms and that this is a template that helps us also understand uh the kind of the post-war period up until the present so it was really that the early period of 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 1910s 1920s through to um uh the, the the war and early post-war period helped me to think about um the ways in which a radiophilia would be fueled uh, with print media and cinema and radio together and not necessarily um not necessarily divorcing them from each other and that indeed uh material cultural objects whether they be um, illustrated magazines or a postcard or other or even the radio receiver itself like to think about how important material objects are you know in tandem with uh, fueling or yeah interacting with this love of radio and i think the other thing i tried to think about was how adjacent hobbies uh feed into uh an interest in radio's content and, and listening to radio since if we look from the very earliest period of radio it's um sports or say religious programs or educational programs or popular music um that sort of define people's attractions to radio so you know we have to always think about how uh maybe the kind of adjacent interests um such as um religious uh, practice or uh consuming sport you know cross over and feed into this radiophilia
1: yeah and that's related also to this uh question of knowing and one of the things I found so useful and interesting is this notion of sort of textuality and intermediality, um, because it really opens up a kind of archive and a method. And I think that a lot of times historians of radio, I know I, you know, I experience this as well. We, you know, go to the sources and if there's if there's nothing sonic and we start to look for text and then, but the text is always sort of a way to get at what's happening on the radio. So you look sort of Mm. through the text, but what you're doing is something very different. You're looking at the text and and telling us what that is telling us about, you know, the construction of this thing called radio. And I just, I find that so fascinating.
0: Thanks. I, I think it is something that, you know, we do have to be also quite mindful of at the moment. There are quite a lot of projects that are starting to do stuff around, Uh, speech to text um, transcriptions of uh, radio archival materials and I think there is a risk there Um, it's something that colleagues who work at archives tell me is that when um, political scientists or historians often come to the archive the first thing they ask is do you have transcripts of your oral history collection or your radio collection and when that's the case they they usually elect not to listen to the audio
1: Mm-hmm.
0: so I think that's also something methodologically uh, speaking that we have to be also really mindful of is um that we ourselves you know in largely producing texts as as scholars that we might also have this same tendency to kind of default um to transcripts uh or scripts um and and you know even though we always know that you know the, the thing that we're dealing with in the sound archive is still, you know, capturing one moment in a flow of of uh, of radio on a particular radio day. Um, I think we do have to be a bit mindful that we kind of have a text textual default that we still, even after the influence of sound studies, that you know, I can I can also admit to it that I I have this impulse as well.
1: Yeah, it's a very it's a a kind of very tricky and um, complicated um, thing to figure out how to, um, I don't know, understand how text and sound are working together, but they're not the same thing. And they're kind of constructing each other. And I thought that 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 chapter uh, really kind of um, made me think about that a lot. Um, In terms of saving, so archives, one of our favorite topics. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I wanted to ask you, Um, I wanted to ask you actually just to talk about your favorite examples, because you have some great examples in that chapter. um, And there are lots of different kinds of saving. And so I wanted to ask you to talk about your favorite examples and um, which ones were the most surprising to you?
0: So in the third chapter on saving, um, I do have this division between kind of saving or collecting or preserving non-sound as well as sound materials and I do sort of divide it up hopefully not too artificially but mainly just as a way for us to um try to pass out a little bit the different types of saving that we encounter when it comes to uh the yeah as I said the so-called ephemeral traces of of radio um across its century and I think interestingly it is often that we think, oh, saving sound, that must be saving, uh, saving radio, that must be automatically its sounds. I think that's just something we kind of tend to think about because we think, but of course, radio is a is a sound based medium. But I think it, it was helpful for me to separate the two a little bit just to then make sense of, you know, what the kind of range of uh, practices are Um especially when you know different listeners or groups of people either save in a way that's kind of quite specific like one type of object Um, for instance a certain type of postcard or um, certain types of uh, buttons or badges depending on what type of English you speak so um, you know this kind of interest in say collecting around one announcer or one star or one station or one type of object and then we have other people who might um be more interested in say more merchandise that were giveaways from the station um or or other similar types of let's say objects that came from people who worked in radio like their own private materials. so um Actually, my favorite example is one that I opened the chapter with, um, and that's a colleague called Laura uh, LaPlaca who wrote a beautiful article about how radio historians and television historians um, are too critical of the archive that they often arrive and say, but where are the things I'm looking for? I want everything to be here. And her argument is, um, you know, that that kind of uh, disappointment comes at the expense of acknowledging the extraordinary materiality of the things that have been preserved from uh, radio and television history and she's primarily looking at the us and she she's written this beautiful piece that i discuss in the book um where she's talking also about her own development as a private collector from her childhood onwards and that she bought a pair of shoes from a um a broadcast presenter and she she along with other objects she had ordered off eBay you know she she labeled them she ordered them I think she polished the shoes now and then um and she talks in a very moving way about this process from being a child and teenage collector to being a um, broadcast archive professional and I think it was that blurring also that she's like acknowledging that um we do often have a blurring between these professional and so-called amateur roles when it comes to uh, saving the traces of radio that I found very persuasive and helpful in my thinking that, that we don't sort of have this idea of the professional and the non-professional where, you know, the the non-professional are fans who are, are very emotional and uh, not very organized in what they do and that somehow the professional would be this uh this very detached person who uh, only applies uh, uh, professional archivist principles to the, but they actually often that the professionals have a strong emotional connection to broadcasting um, that's actually really motivated them to go into this profession. So I think that was my favourite example. I mean, there are many examples of interesting objects people collected, whether they're vintage radios, postcards, um, making their own scrapbooks or, or so forth. But I think, I think I found her story to be so moving and instructive that that's why I opened the chapter with a quote from her.
1: Yeah. I love that. Um, So, and this leads, you know, leads us to sharing, which is also um, about objects. And one of the things that I noticed in this chapter, and I wanted to hear you talk more about, was this idea of nostalgia because it seems to be really an important part of the sharing and maybe the saving, right? There's this kind of built-in nostalgia, nostalgic kind of tone for the things that get saved and shared. And I wonder if you could talk about, you know, where does that come from and where does it leave us? Like, do we always need to talk about radio
0: in nostalgic terms? Um, Interesting, yeah. No, I mean, certainly I think... um in those two chapters I talk about the emergence of uh, old-time radio collectors and uh I look in particular with those groups and how um there's a strong uh pull towards collecting from their own youth um so the ways in which uh you know what's called the golden age of American radio um, you know, started to be kind of formed as a, as a, as a theme, but also as a, yeah, an object of desire, let's say for collectors at the moment that they themselves. So some of those people were amateur collectors and some of them were people who worked in the broadcast industries themselves at the moment that they, uh, started to move age wise in their life cycle towards retirement. Um, so you know I do find it really interesting to think about this in the book I talk about how important it is to to take into account the life cycle approach that's been advocated in fan studies research because it does help us understand that there are certain ebbs and flows uh when it comes to uh memory practices and also effective practices around radio um so you know I I do think that nostalgia um you know kind of this process of uh, uh thinking about your own earlier experiences and perhaps idealizing a better time in the past where we had a golden age of radio like I I do think it is productive at the same time I also tried to think about again similar to our story about um Inventive male geniuses in the 20s and 30s and how they were canonized. I also tried to think about the visibility of fan practices. So I looked at the way in which the most visible uh, uh, amateur collectors um, uh, and also people who are involved in different forms of sharing, say, uh, with online websites or having their own uh, swap meets for swapping or buying and selling vintage radio sets how there is a skewing uh in terms of feasibility towards groups of predominantly middle to older age um or retirement age um uh like yeah white middle class men in the North American and Western European context and so part of what I was trying to do there is also think about you know which acts of saving and sharing, you know, gain a certain visibility with online websites, with large numbers of of members. And perhaps uh, there are other less organized or less visible uh, collecting and fan practices uh, that, that we may be overlooking as a result. So part of what I was trying to do is take what we call a feminist media studies approach and also a more kind of critical global media studies approach to say like, okay well there's you know there's every reason to assume that there have also been um for instance in the in the north american context uh uh i think uh black american uh amateur radio fans uh and club clubs with clubhouses but perhaps they haven't been narrated as much in national history so i really went digging a bit and i looked at a very uh, helpful encyclopedia of African American radio that told me about all the different uh amateur clubs that were set up and I did some other digging and found other traces of uh uh Black American teenage girls who were into amateur radio so I tried to also think about how we have traces very faint traces sometimes in in the archive or in certain circulations but that it's important to make sense of um let's say the less visible but no not at all less important uh situations where um where we see uh, attachments to radio and fan practices uh particularly when it comes to sharing a love of radio
1: yeah so again poking at that narrative and really not um not undermining it as much as expanding the categories and so who else was was sharing radio and who else was was um engaging in those practices. So you finish the book with a discussion of affect and some kind of theoretical um uh framings. Um you use Lauren Berlant and Arjuna Potterai and and um, a few others as well. And so I my sense of what you were trying to do in that last bit is sort of working through the question of, you know, affect um Posed as a sort of nonverbal or preverbal or almost, I don't know, a, a universal kind of human, you know um, experience, and then the very constructedness and specificities that you really you point out sort of over and over again throughout the book. And so um, And I think that what you were trying to do, and correct me if I'm wrong, is sort of balance, sure. come to a balance between those two and sort of engage those in a sort of dialogue. Um, and I would, I would love to hear more about how, how you worked through those questions.
0: Sure thing. So it's interesting. Um, there was a real fashion for thinking about affect in relationship to sound over the past 10 to 15 years. And I guess in an early moment, um, first coming into sound studies, first encountering, uh, very, you know, persuasive accounts about, um, about affect and sound often influenced by the work of Brian Massumi and others I guess earlier on I was quite um charmed by some of those accounts and also took them on board and I guess coming coming back to this question of affect and emotion when in developing the theoretical framework for radiophilia I, I started to feel that some of this um insistence in some of affect theory on um the the pre-linguistic the pre-verbal the the split second um you know as productive as i know it has been for for a lot of scholars it wasn't really helping me with with the things i want to think about so i you know really for the first time in quite some time i returned to the field of um, affect studies and the history of of emotions and these two fields i had to kind of catch up what would have been the most recent discussions and i found uh, a really helpful book by margaret wetherill uh which uh tries to find a kind of a third way so you know reads the latest work from from neuroscience about affect and emotion and really tries to take on the arguments from affect theory in the history of emotions and does weigh a little bit more on the side of uh, i would say the practice theory approach of the history of emotions um and uh, you know in a way suggests that some aspects of affect theory might sound really appealing but they don't really add up to what what practically the neuroscience is telling us in in the latest results so what she does I think really helpfully is that she comes up with a concept of uh effective practice so trying to understand affect and an emotion as relational events taking place in social life and involving involving performance and sociality so Having a similar spirit to affect theory, but not trying to make the same calls that you're that you're always looking for the the kind of in a way the preverbal, the pre-linguistic moment, uh, but rather kind of shifting to say like what what do people do with affect? How do they how does how does it in a way uh take form in in <laughs> you know in social acts or in um Yeah, these moments of uh, expression or or, or performance. I I found that to be more productive for this book. Um, So not necessarily to dismiss it, but to sort of fold uh, affect into a a larger kind of continuum, let's say. Um, And so, yeah, how, how does that then influence what I'm trying to do in the conclusion? I think what it's doing is that by the time I got to the conclusion of the book, I started to wonder even though I, I have moments in the book where I say, listen, um, radiophilia can be a sustained practice uh, for a given amount of time, or it can be, um, you know, kind of reinforced through habit and practice, but it could also be a fleeting moment. And I tried to so, sort of also say um, it can be about positive affects and, and, and about love, but it can be also about people who are socially, physically, Um, or geographically isolated and that actually could be that you're in a situation of war or conflict or social unrest and isolation and that you actually, you know, may may actually have other emotions uh, feeding in uh, to your attachment to radio. So that could be fear or anxiety. Um, uh, So it, it doesn't always necessarily have to be about love per se, And I guess I was trying to also say that loving radio isn't always just a good thing. So, you know, it could be that, you know, we have a situation of, of obsession with radio, um, you know, in a situation of hate speech through radio or through uh, other forms of um, politicized misuse of radio. So I tried to at least throughout the book say like, yes, we're thinking about this attachment, but the attachment might not, not always just be love, but mixed with other emotions, and it might not always be just a wholesale positive development that we're making sense of here. And I guess by the conclusion, by engaging with the work of Lauren Berlant, who wrote a book called Desire Slash Love in the early 2000s, and Arjen Apoduro's um, Modernity at Large and other writings from the 90s onwards it's kind of a reckoning that I'm trying to have. And I found that those two scholars' work was really helpful for me to kind of think about both the kind of uh, productive capacity of this radiophilia that's more on the side of Aryan Apidurai, thinking about imagination and the different ways in which perhaps uh, media, but in this case, radio, you know, is about, um, transnational media flows and media consumption across national borders, um, that it might be a space for the imagination, for fantasy and world world making, that listeners may experience pleasure, joy, or comfort. Um, and as he says, that such embodied expressions, practices, and collective formations through media allow groups to, as he says, quote, to imagine and feel things together. So that's really this kind of like All of the kind of potential that that we might uh find um with radio um but in a way berlant lauren berlant's work is also kind of asking us to think about ideologies of love about the kind of industrial context of the entertainment industries uh, um about in a way i guess to warn us against any kind of naive celebration of radio as a free space for the formation of love, affection, or attachment. So in a way, these two scholars are helping me kind of think between radiophilia as this kind of, yeah, in a way, productive, expansive potential uh, for connecting uh, listeners, you know, across space and time. And Berlant is reminding us that... um, you know, that, that we always have to be a little bit uh, cautious when we think about the ways in which, in a way, love and desire operate in, let's say, the, the 20th century, like the long 20th century, um, in the context of global ca- capitalism.
1: Yeah, and of course, um, you're not going to end triumphantly. <laughs> so um, I really, um, I really, I really like that turn at the end because it just sort of pushes everything a little bit deeper um and and turns everything that we've just read uh (laughs) a little bit on its side and i think that that's i think that's really productive um (laughs) i've taken up so much of your time is there any is there anything else um i haven't asked you about that you'd like to um mention before we before we close
0: um wow i mean i guess perhaps i would just add as a kind of final thing like even though i wrote this as a book about radio i'm i'm hoping that it's also a book that contributes to the larger project of um of sound studies and in a way even though i feel still a bit modest about how much i contribute to the larger projects that some of our colleagues have called for of remapping sound studies and uh questioning certain western western epistemologies of of sound um at least i hope i've taken steps to thinking with that work and asking what it, what it, what what does that mean for our study of radio across the radio century um so i guess as much as it is a, a, a radio book i and and extending into contemporary podcasting and digital audio formats um yeah, I do hope that it really is productive uh, for the field of sound studies, um, as well as the other fields that I've mentioned already today, like fan studies that historically hasn't discussed radio um, and, you know, in dialogue with, say, feminist media studies and and like a global media studies um, uh, field of research. So at least that's my ambition is to also um, write a book where radio is... Uh, taken serious for the the larger project of, say, media and cultural history and media and cultural analysis. Um, and also, yeah, contribute to the discussions we've been having in other adjacent fields.
1: Thank you so much. It has been such a pleasure to talk to you about this book.
0: Thank you, Alejandra.